0: Draw your attention to John chapter 3. This is probably one of the best known conversations in all of Scripture. John chapter 3 records the discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus. It also contains probably the best known verse in all of the Bible, John three 16. We're going to take this conversation in at least two parts. So this morning, we'll focus on the first part of it, found in verses 1 through 8. So please, follow with me in your copy of God's Word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Would you please bow with me? Oh Lord, this morning as we have sung Your praises, we've been reminded that You are indeed our Heavenly Father, our Papa. We've been reminded of Your glorious coming, Your soon coming. And Father, we have been reminded that on that day, our only hope will be that we have been born again. That You have saved us. Now Father, this morning I ask You to give us fresh ears to hear this very familiar passage quicken our hearts Lord direct our gaze upon you and Lord we pray that you would bring the new birth into our lives through Jesus Christ we ask this and the church said amen if you take any time to visit a bookstore or maybe you just start perusing things online at Amazon, you'll notice that there is no shortage of self-help books. Americans love self-help books. They feed our our individualism. They feed our egos that with just a a little bit of help, we can fix whatever problems we may have. I was amazed at some of the titles of them. For example, did you know that there is a self-help book entitled... A Guide to Becoming a Hobo in One Week. There's even a self-help book for children. A self-help book for children entitled, But Mom, Whining for Dummies. As if help is needed in that area. But perhaps one of my favorite self-help books is this one that I came across. How to Buy a Self-Help Book. So, you know, if you're doubting and you're uncertain and you need help, there you go. We love those books. Americans buy them in mass quantities. They feed our our sense of self-sufficiency and at the same time make us fat with our pride because we can say, look what we have done. That's why I want to make it clear at the outset. Christianity is not self-help. Following Jesus, in fact, is the very opposite of self-help. Following Jesus begins with and consists of the confession that you and I cannot help ourselves. We cannot fix our greatest problems. In fact, that's one of the basic truths of Christianity. A foundational belief of our faith is that humans are totally unable to fix our greatest problems. And our greatest problem is not that life is hard. Our greatest problem is not that we make mistakes. Our greatest problem is that we sin against a holy God. And we can't help ourselves. We can't stop it. You and I are drawn to rebel against God just like a magnet is drawn to steal. Sometimes our rebellion against God is very overt where we blatantly break in against the laws that God has made. Other times our rebellion is more subtle where we simply refuse to pray. In that moment, we're rebelling against God because we're saying, Lord, I really don't need You. I can handle whatever comes along this day. And so subtly, we thumb our nose at God saying we don't need Him. That's our nature. And because rebelling against God is in our very nature, a simple remodel will not do things. For some reason, as I was working on this, my mind went back to the glory days of high school. Reflected on a friend of mine that used to have the classic teenager car at that time anyway. A 1979 Pacer. Some of you are smiling with envy. Now, if you've never seen a pacer, the best way I can describe it is this. It is a bubble with wheels. That's it. It's a big bubble. And um, this friend of mine took great pride in her pacer. Clean it, drive it, sported that thing. Now, the interesting thing is this. No matter how clean she would keep her pacer, even if she came out and she had a, a BMW emblem, and put that BMW emblem on her pacer and said, my pacer is to me just like a BMW. we just said, no it ain't. It don't matter how well you clean it, what emblem you put on it. It is a pacer. Sometimes we try to do that with life. Just to clean it up a little bit, call it something that it's not. We try to remodel things by saying, I'm going to be nicer, I'm going to be kinder, kinder. I'm going to be gentler. And it looks good on the outside, but at some point, our nature shines through. 2003, Disney came out with what I think is one of their better films. Actually, it was Disney and Pixar, Finding Nemo. If you've never watched Finding Nemo, watch it. It's enjoyable basic story is that a little clownfish by the name of Nemo ends up running away slash getting lost from his dad Marlon Marlin the clownfish sets out on a journey to find his son bring him home and on his way he meets a lot of different companions he meets Dory Dory the fish who can't remember something for more than three seconds some of you know a Dory And Dory and Marlon are searching for Nemo and they meet all this this variety of people and at one point in the film they meet a group of sharks. And these sharks have banded together to form a self-help group. These sharks have determined they are no longer going to eat fish because fish are friends, not food. As they are... Marlon and Dory are engaging with the sharks Dory has a little accident and scrapes her fin and she starts to bleed one of the larger sharks a great white named Bruce is saying fish are friends not food fish are friends fish are food he couldn't help himself when the blood got to his senses that's a picture of our lives We can be kinder and nicer and gentler for a little while and then that moment comes, and guess what? Our true nature shines through again. If we are to be right with God, it's not a remodel. If we are to be right with God, it's not just a a, a desire, it's not making a resolution to be better. If we are to be right with God, we need, we must have a new nature. We must have new desires. We must be recreated. And those very things are the focus of this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Verse 1 we are introduced to this man of the Pharisees. He's a ruler of the Jews. And he comes to Jesus by night. Now, Nicodemus, it's believed, is an example of the group of people that John mentioned in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Remember in that passage, and you can look up a few verses to see it, John mentions that there are those who believed on Jesus because of the signs. But they weren't converted. Jesus knew their hearts, so he didn't have faith in them. Now Nicodemus falls into this thinking, this category, because look what he says in verse 2. We know you're a teacher that has come from God because no one can do these signs unless God's with him. So Nicodemus is a representation of that group. He believes certain things about Jesus, but it is not saving faith. In fact, John gives a subtle hint about this truth of Nicodemus. You look in verse verse 2, he comes to Jesus by night. It's interesting he throws in that detail. On one level, it's a very pragmatic move by Nicodemus. He comes by night in secrecy because the religious leaders are already getting upset about Jesus. So this way, he can come to Jesus under the cloak of darkness. It also allowed time for extended conversation. Often rabbis would meet at night to talk with one another, discuss things, because at night, they could have uninterrupted time, whereas in the day, the demands of life often interrupted their discussions. There's also a very subtle nuance I think John includes here. In his gospel, the word night and darkness are loaded theologically. They represent that which does not know God. So I think when John is led to put this little, this little detail in, it's more than just saying he came when the sun was down. Nicodemus. This leader of the Jews, this man who sees signs of God, is in the darkness. He doesn't really know God. That's the wonderful good news about Nicodemus. Nicodemus shows you don't have to stay in that category. Nicodemus appears three times in this gospel. The first time here. The second time later on where he's a little more bold. And the third time it is clear that Nicodemus has become a genuine believer of Jesus Christ. But this journey of faith begins with this issue of being born again. And that's where our faith has to begin. Our salvation begins in the same place. It begins with the absolute necessity of the new birth. If you and I are to be in the kingdom of God, we must be born again. Verse 3, Jesus makes this abundantly clear. Nicodemus has said, okay, tell, tell us more about you. You're clearly a man of God because you're doing these signs. But Jesus turns the tables on him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That phrase, born again, has become synonymous with the evangelical faith. The phrase can also mean born from above. It refers to being recreated, being made new. And it's a rebirth that happens because of God's power. The statement itself is a challenge to Nicodemus. Verse 2, Nicodemus is assessing who Jesus is. When all of a sudden Jesus says, Nicodemus, in assessing who I am, you need to be assessing if you're ready for the kingdom. He shifts gears. Nicodemus has said we have seen these signs that point to the kingdom. And Jesus says you've not really seen the kingdom at all. Many ways this could be offensive to Nicodemus. Because if anyone. If anyone should see the kingdom. And experience the kingdom. It should be Nicodemus. Notice he's a Pharisee. A ruler of the Jews. He knows the Old Testament. So if you think biblical knowledge gains you entrance into the kingdom Nicodemus could check that off to be a Pharisee meant you took a a a covenant you made a a commitment to follow the the law to the utmost if you think being good gains you entrance into the kingdom of God Nicodemus could check that box if you think being religious Going to church, doing the religious things that a person ought to do, gains you entrance into the kingdom, Nicodemus could check that off. He's a ruler of the Jews. In that one phrase in verse 3, Jesus absolutely demolishes every pretension we have that says, I deserve to be in the kingdom. He says your scriptural knowledge doesn't gain you entrance. Your goodness and your religiosity does not gain you entrance into the kingdom you must be born again no matter what you think you've seen Nicodemus you don't even know the kingdom yet it's amazing that as God has created every creature he's made us with the ability to see what we need to see for example humans with our eyes only see thirty percent of the range of the sun's light there are colors that we can't pick up on because of our eyesight Animals, many animals, exceed our abilities. Bats can see by sonar. Pigeons navigate by magnetic fields. Bloodhounds perceive a world of smell that's unavailable to us. Each is able to see what they need to. So it tells us something here automatically. If you and I cannot see or experience the kingdom of God on our own, it's because our nature will not allow it. We are not naturally geared to enter it. That's why Jesus spoke of the new birth, a renewal of the whole. One of the basic doctrines of Christianity is what's called total depravity or radical depravity. doesn't mean that you and I are as bad as we could be. doesn't mean that we're all horrible people. But what it does mean is this, that every part of our being, our thinking, our emotions, our physical makeup has been tainted if not destroyed by sin. It means there's nothing in us that points Godward. That's why the scripture says there is no one that seeks God. Because of the fall, and because the fall has impacted our total beings, we cannot seek God. Now Nicodemus catches what Jesus means. That's why in verse 4 he says, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time? Now Nicodemus is a smart man. He's not talking literally here. He knows you can't go back in the womb to be reborn. But his question is this, how does this happen? How can you turn back the clock? Nicodemus doesn't argue that the new birth is not necessary. He argues how can it happen? How can you begin again? How can you get this new lease on life? If my effort has been following the law and the law doesn't save me, how can I be born again? If being a good person doesn't save me, how can I be born again? That's why Jesus answers in verses 5 and 6 that the new birth is a work of God and God alone. Verse 5, Jesus responds to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Spirit. Now, verse 5 contains a phrase that has been greatly debated. What does it mean to be born of water and of spirit? There's usually three options that are pointed out. Some say Jesus is referring to physical birth. But when you read the context, that's really nonsensical. Why would Jesus say, okay, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, first you've got to be born from your mother. That kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? That's like opening up instructions on how to install, say, a new microwave oven. And the first instruction is, step one to installing this microwave, be born. Well, yeah. So I think we can rule that out. Some argue that this is a reference to Christian baptism. To be born of water to them means being baptized. But as we think about this, first, the idea of Christian baptism as an initiatory right into the church had not been formed yet. Now, there was the baptism of repentance. And you can make an argument that that's what's being referred to here. However, this is something that Nicodemus would have understood. Look over to verse 9. Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? But Jesus answers him, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? So clearly, Nicodemus was supposed to have understood what was meant by born of water and spirit. And Christian baptism would not have been on his radar. I think the answer is found in the Old Testament. I think Jesus is referring to something that Nicodemus should have known very well and it's a passage from the book of Ezekiel you'll see it up on the screen Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 25 through 27 God is speaking of the new covenant God says I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you how does he cleanse we'll sprinkle clean water And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus in that statement, unless you are born of water and spirit, is saying that what Ezekiel prophesied has come to be, the only way you can be clean is by the movement of the spirit of God that gives you a new heart and cleanses you it's a picture of total transformation it is dealing with the real issue and that is our nature our heart bringing about a change at the, at the very core of our beings you see that is the work that God does God takes a person who could ha- care less about being righteous and makes them desire righteousness God can take a person who hates holiness and calls them to love holy God takes a person who is his enemy and changes them into his child he brings about a change of nature and it's a work that is done by God and God alone. Our credentials don't guarantee it. Our good works can't bring about the new birth. It is a work of God and God alone. That's what verse 6 emphasizes. If you are born physically, you're physical. If you are born of the Spirit, you are a new spirit, a new being done by God. And church, that is great, glorious, good news that it is a work of God because you and I can't Do it. If God doesn't change us, we'll not be changed. Francis Chan is a prominent speaker as well as author. His book, Crazy Love, has sold millions of copies. He recently revealed a struggle that he and his wife had revolving around their teenage daughter. And I quote, Chan writes, I cannot make someone fall in love with Jesus. It really came home for me, Chan writes, literally, with my own teenage daughter who, 18 months ago, was not in love with Jesus. I spent nights, Chan says, crying, praying to the Lord. Here I am known for my ability to communicate, but there was nothing I could do for my own daughter that would make her fall in love with Jesus. I could guide and lead her, but I was powerless to convict her. Chan writes, I prayed, God, either your spirit comes into her or your spirit doesn't. It doesn't matter how great a dad I am, I cannot bring life to her. One day, she came into Chan's room and said, You were right, Dad. The Holy Spirit was not in me, but now He is. She talked about how near she was to God and how everything had changed. A Chan confesses that he and his wife were skeptical. They wanted to see evidence of change. But 18 months later, he says, I can really say she is a new creation. I didn't do that, he says. It was the Holy Spirit. And because it is a work of God, not of us, church, that means that anyone can be born again. Anyone. Notice in verses 7 and 8, he says, Don't marvel that I say you've got to be recreated. You've got to have a a new nature that makes you desire God. That makes you turn from sin. And then in verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it wishes. You can see evidence of it, but you can't control it. It goes where it will. So is the work of the Spirit. That means that the Spirit of God doesn't just look and say, Oh, that person is morally better than that person, so I'm going to save them. The Spirit of God can save all to the uttermost. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent. When the Spirit of God saves you, you are saved. It's not dependent upon our behavior. Being good doesn't gain you any closer to salvation than being morally reprehensible back in the 70's and I don't know why I'm stuck in the 70's this past week a man took the entertainment world by storm a man by the name of Alice Cooper for those of you not familiar with him he is known as the godfather of shock rock his stage presence was one of utter evil incorporating mock electric chairs and guillotines into his act he was the picture of depravity God was working. His wife became a believer and began pestering him to go to church. And finally, he gave in. And the Spirit of God began working to the point where Alice Cooper became a believer. Now, it's easy to sit in, sit in skepticism and say, Well, yeah, yeah, we'll see how that'll last. That's been about 20 years ago. And Alice Cooper is still out witnessing. In fact, he wrote these words. He said, I've talked to some big stars about the faith, some really horrific characters, and you'd be surprised. The ones that you would think are the farthest gone are the ones that are most apt to listen. And once again, there's a sense of pride. Yes, Alice Cooper was a morally rehensible person that needed to be saved. Praise God. But you know the truth is, even the best person you know morally needs to be saved too. They may be like the Reverend Reverend William Haslam. Haslam, I'm sorry, William Haslam. When Haslam was a young man, he became very ill. Called out, "Lord, help me, heal me!" And he began reading his prayer book, and God granted him health. And upon his health, he decided that he was going to enter the ministry. He became a member of the clergy. Had a thriving ministry. Church was growing. They were building new buildings. Hundreds were coming to hear the young Reverend William Haslam preach. Till one day in his ministry, his gardener became deathly ill. Haslam sat down to try to talk with him about salvation and found he had no words to give him. And this troubled him. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know how to talk in terms of new birth and regeneration. A few Sundays after that, Haslam took to the pulpit to preach from Matthew twenty-two forty-two. 42. What think you of Christ? And he records that as he was preaching, his conscience kept telling him, You are no better than the Pharisees. You are no better than the Pharisees. It's recorded what happened that day. Members of his congregation said that as he kept preaching, his face changed. His heart leapt upward. And something happened within him that was visible physically. Somebody in the congregation jumped up and shouted, The parson is converted! Hallelujah! The preacher got saved! Instantly, several hundred in attendance started praising God and singing the doxology. Why? Their preacher got saved. At least 20 other people were saved that day. And others who were saved began telling the story of the preacher had been converted by his own sermon. You get my point? You could be on this end and you may be the worst person you could imagine, or you may be the best person it doesn't gain you standing into the kingdom of God. What does it take? The new birth. Being born again. How do we know? How do we know that I'm born again? There are two evidences I would give you. First is this. Is the repentance of sin? Is there a genuine striving and turning from sin coupled with the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord? One who is born again will turn from sin and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the marks. We must be born again. And it is a work of God. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.